All right, good morning. Great to see you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection FC. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, um, I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one on the ground near you. Um, this uh, year, we are um, uh, looking at, sorry, <laughs> um, this year we are, we are focusing on our core value of beauty, uh, the core values of, uh, uh, as, our, of a ch- as our church, of our church is what I'm trying to say. Uh, we value the gospel, uh, we value vulnerability, and beauty. And I think the idea of beauty is a little bit more elusive, uh, and so we're taking really three weeks uh, just to even kind of introduce what this topic is, is all about. Uh, one way to think about what do we mean when we what do we mean when we talk about beauty uh, is to say that um, we tend to be more comfortable, I think, with talking about the idea that that God is good and that God is true, and that we uh, that we follow God because He's good, that we follow God because it's true, it's the right thing to do. I think the truth and the goodness can kind of feel like a a push towards God. Um, beauty. It's like a, it kind of pulls us towards God, if I can, if I can put it that way. There is a uh, an allure, there's a compellingness to who God is, and so um, with that said, let me now ask you to stand with me, and I'm going to read the first half of Revelation chapter one. Let's hear God's word. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the prophecy, uh, the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, Even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, as we give our attention now to your word, would you speak to us? Would you fill our minds and our hearts? Would you, um, by the power of your Spirit, make Jesus more real to us? We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. This uh, past year, one of the the things that I have um, enjoyed doing and tried to do is, is learn how to cook. And I don't mean just getting, you know, some pasta and boiling water and but like really cook. And so I saw this video about um, 
a, a recipe. I watched this YouTube video about how to make ponzu marinated ribeye steak. And it was one of those moments where yeah, I watched that video and I could tell just from watching it that it was going to be incredible. But that didn't compare to actually eating it. <laughs> you know, you can know something is going to be great, but actually experiencing it is even better. Uh, interesting thing I've learned or kind of discovered about cooking is that there's a lot to do, uh, there's a lot about cooking that really has nothing to do with actually eating great food. I mean, you can watch beautiful shows about cooking on Netflix and, um, and not actually eat anything. It's really frustrating. You know, you can go to Williams-Sonoma and kind of Google over the beautiful gadgets. Um, you can memorize recipes, but all of those pale in comparison to actually eating a great meal. And sometimes I wonder if, as Christians in the 21st century, we live a little bit like people who have memorized the ingredients to a great recipe, but very rarely actually enjoy the meal. We know uh, more, we have more knowledge than know-how when it comes to our faith. Uh, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, you know, maybe we check all the right boxes. Um, yes, the Bible is true. Yes, uh, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, so on. And yet, there's a coldness to our faith. When we pray, we wonder, like, is there anybody really listening on the other end of the line? Um, we listen to Jesus' words when he says to take up our cross and follow him. And we think, yeah, maybe he's just like exaggerating. <laughs> uh, there's a disconnect. Um, is it possible that maybe we are more theoretical <laughs> Christians than practicing Christians? And I think a lot of this comes about for us just because of the time and the culture that we live in. We live in a time that is called secular. And um, what that means is that uh, we live in a time where we are uh, expected to behave regardless of our convictions as if there were no God, as if there is sort of a dome over the sky and there is no such thing as a transcendent divine being. Um, and so, whatever you might believe at home, you know, you're free to have your entitled beliefs, but when, or you know, your, your preferred beliefs, but when you come to work, when you come to school, you know, let's just kind of leave those things to the side, right? Um, secularism is, is an attempt to construct meaning without reference to the divine or the transcendent. It's, a, it's an attempt to construct uh, meaning in life without reference to God, only in kind of this worldly terms. And what I want you to see this morning is, is that even while, um, you know, you, you see these things that flare up in the news every once in a while, where Christians are like loudly protesting the latest injustice um, <laughs> of, uh, you know, the whatever way that, that, that our faith is being marginalized in the culture that we live in. All of that notwithstanding, we still actually believe as secular people. Um, even, even our believing it has become secular. Even our Christianity and practice of it has become secular. And here's what I mean um, by that. For many of us, our Christianity 
feels disconnected from our everyday lives. There's the things that we have to do, um, but we've kind of given up on this idea that there's a transcendent divine being that actually interacts with our day-to-day lives. We say that we believe in God, but we don't really pray. We, um, we say that the gospel shapes our identity, but we treat Jesus like he's just kind of an add-on to the rest of our lives. Uh, even if we believe, you know, even if we say we're Christians, the things that really matter, the things that, that we spend our time, our days consumed with it, you know, things like we gotta, we gotta, you know, we gotta go to work, we gotta provide for the family, we gotta spend time with our kids. Um, Jesus is a little bit like the uh, the cherry on top of everything else that really matters. We treat the Bible like it's a book of answers instead of the voice of a Creator God who loves us. So there's a sense in which we are all secular now, whether you are a believer or not. The way that our faith operates operates in a secular fashion. And the problem with all of this. I promise I'm going to get to Revelation 1 in a minute. But the problem with all this is an introduction to an introduction. The problem with all this is that it just doesn't work. That, like, the light still breaks through at the cracks. And, um, you know, we see that in our culture um, in just the, the popularity of mythologies like the Lord of the Rings or the Harry Potter series. Um, we see this, um, we see this in, in all kinds of ways. And, and I want to be clear that, uh, okay, so secularism is, is an attempt to say that science can or will eventually explain everything. And while it's true that science explains a lot, um, some, let, let's put it like this, science can't explain the phenomenon of why you know, we see uh, beautiful colors when the sun sets. But science cannot explain why it takes our breath away. And so... I'm not saying anything against science. Uh, science is amazing. But secularism is insufficient to explain the data that science presents us with. Secularism has reduced our capacity to wonder, but the light still shines through the cracks. So this year, I've told you that we're going to give attention to our core value of beauty, and that means we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Revelation, because I want to give you the space to stand in awe of God and who he is. And the book of Revelation, I don't know what your like thoughts are about the book of Revelation, but there's this idea that the book of Revelation is this really confusing book that comes at the end of the Bible, and nobody really knows what it means, but it talks about these really scary things that are going to happen right before the world ends. But if you think about what the word revelation means... <laughs> If you said, like, came home from work and said, honey, today I had a revelation, you wouldn't mean by that that, like, I had a really scary experience that I didn't understand, (laughs) right? What you mean is I saw something clearly. Um, And so the the, the book of Revelation is God pulling back the curtain and God showing us what's really going on in the world that we live in. You know, in Harry Potter, Harry Potter lived the first 11 years of his life in kind of a secular world. And then he got an invitation to attend Hogwarts. And what that showed him was that these inklings that he had had all of his life, that there was actually more going on in the world, that that was actually true. Um, Now, I don't want to push the magic metaphor too far here. 
because I'm not saying that we live in a magical world, but Revelation shows us that there is a God who is real that is not detached from our everyday life. And so this year, as we look at what it means that God is beautiful and that he is glorious and that it kind of pulls us towards him, we're going to spend a good deal of time looking at the book of Revelation because it's in Revelation that God pulls back the curtain and we see a glimpse of what's really going on in the world. If you really want to understand human history and how to navigate life in this beautiful and messed up world, the book of Revelation is a great guide. And so I want to help us move this year from spiritual consumers, um, people who are just trying to stay on top of the busy, hectic pace of life in this world, where we see Jesus as just an add-on to our lives. And I want to help us move into disciples who stand in awe of Jesus and therefore follow him as we live life in this broken and beautiful world. Revelation helps us reorient our lives around a God who really exists and who is good and who is beautiful and who is stunning. So as we start that journey, this morning what I want you to see in Revelation 1 is as the curtain is pulled back, as, as we begin to see the spiritual forces that work behind human history, um, as we begin to kind of learn how to stand in awe of who God is, Revelation 1 gives us two footholds uh, for living life in this world. Two footholds for uh, navigating faithfulness and living with awe in a secular world. So, um, Revelation 1 starts off by saying uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that Jesus is both the source and the content. Uh, Jesus, the revel- think about this, the revelation of Jesus. He is the source, he is what is being revealed, but he's also the one revealing it. And um, he continues to say, this happened, comes up three or four times in, uh, in Revelation 1. Verse 4 says, Grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and is to come. And then in verse 8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Um, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, he, three or four times he says in different ways, I'm the beginning and I'm the end. So what, he, what he's saying here, you know, Alpha and Omega. Jesus is not saying, like, I'm an alpha male. (laughs) Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So Jesus is saying in different ways, I am the beginning and I am the end. And what I want you to see, the two footholds for navigating life in this world are this, that Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the foundation and the telos of life. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning and the few moments we have left. So firstly, Jesus is the foundation. Um, We understand the idea of a foundation, right? The idea is that uh, you can build a remarkable structure that might be very impressive, and yet without a solid foundation, it will crumble over time. And so um, we can live remarkable lives, but without Jesus as our foundation. It is only a matter of time before disaster strikes. The Bible says this constantly. Uh, It's constantly speaking about Jesus as the foundation. If you go all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, it 
says that it was by the word of God that, uh, that God called creation into existence. And the New Testament shows us that, that Jesus is the word of God that was made into flesh. It's, by, it's through Jesus that the world, the foundation of the world uh, was created. Um, the Bible talks about Jesus as the cornerstone, uh, which you know, in ancient building techniques was the idea of the first stone that was laid that would uh, set the, the, the pattern and the trajectory for everything else that came after it. Maybe nowhere speaks of Jesus as the foundation better than Colossians chapter 1, where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is the firstborn of all creation. It's, Paul says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What it, just an overwhelming, majestic statement of what it means that Jesus is the foundation, he's central uh, to all that is and exists. I'm not really sure how I can explain that any better. Apart from Christ, the Bible is saying, um, life loses its uh, its significance. We may build lives that look exciting and successful and extraordinary, and yet it is only a matter of time. You know, hundred years is a blip on the radar from the perspective of eternity. And apart from Christ as our foundation, it is only a matter of time before our lives crumble. Another way to say this is this: that Jesus isn't just the the add-on to our lives. Apart from Jesus as the foundation of our lives, um, all things begin to crumble. He is the one that holds our lives together. I think one of the ways that secularism has infiltrated Christianity is that as Christians, we now often live. Like, yeah, Jesus is great. He's like the cherry on top of an already great life. And so... um, I said this a minute ago, but we, we live like the things that are really important are work and family and relationships and neighbors. And yeah, of course, like if you've got time, Jesus. Jesus is the cherry on top. But the real work of life is providing for a family, paying the bills, not making a moral shipwreck of our lives, hopefully having some fun. Jesus is the cherry on top, so he's the first thing that we cut out when things get tough. I, I was talking to a guy recently who had this great metaphor. He, he put it to me like this. He said, he said, every year I go down to the beach and I collect the, like five or six big rocks. And I bring them back and I show them to my kids. And I say, you know, everybody's got five or six big rocks in their lives. You know, we've got work. We've got a marriage. We've got family. We've got money. We've got, you know, and then, of course, there's God, too. And he says, I was going to do this, but it rained all week. He says, there's only one way to stack them. And if you think about it, if you stack them, you know, I don't know, marriage, family, work, money, fun, and then you put God on top, it destroys the entire thing. Like, Jesus will wreck your life if you try to just add him as an add-on on top of everything. Jesus is the largest personality in the universe with whom we have to reckon, and so we cannot add him into our lives as the cherry on top, he, is only, he only works in our lives as the foundation, which, let me hasten to add, does not mean that Jesus has the foundation. Uh, like means life will be easy. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. 
But we live in a culture that has come untethered. Um, we live in a culture where technology has made it possible to do things that are just amazing and incredible. And so much of the time, we live our lives with this like hustle and this busy, and we rarely stop to think about like what is the point of all that we're doing. You know, um, Ladera Ranch, where we're sitting, the, uh, the motto of Ladera Ranch is roots and wings. It's based on this quote that says that there are only two lasting bequests we can hope to give our children. One is roots and the other is wings. It's a beautiful quote. It's this idea that like, we want our kids to grow up in a, in a neighborhood where they're known and feel safe and they're grounded and they have this sense of home. But we also want to give them wings. We want them to have every possibility. You know, we want them to soar. We want them to reach for the... And the reality is we have wings, but there, we have no roots in the culture that we live in. So we shuttle our kids from activity to activity to activity, and nobody ever stops to say, what in the world is the point of all of this? If you think about a kite, like a kite only works if it's anchored to something. And the moment that that anchor gets, you know, that cord gets cut, a kite just blows away and eventually... Trash, I guess. Life only works if we have a foundation. And I think that many of us kind of uh, protect ourselves from disappointment by just having low expectations. Like, uh, I'm not really going to expect that God is going to do anything in my life, and therefore I'm not that disappointed when he doesn't. <laughs> and so our Christianity is boring our faith is boring, bores us, it bores others. And uh, then we just try to operate on the plane of what is right and what is good, and there's not a lot of beauty. Uh, Haddon Robinson is a, sem- uh, he might have just passed away, but he, he was a seminary professor. He wrote a number of, of uh, influential, uh, uh, he wrote a book on preaching that like every pastor has read. And um, I, I came across a quote of his this week. I was shocked to hear that he had said this. He said, I've come closer to being bored out of the Christian faith and being reasoned out of it. I think we underestimate the deadly gas of boredom. It is not only the death of communication, but the death of life and of hope. Jesus is the foundation. And what I want to ask you this morning is what if we just decided to take God at his word? What would that actually look like for us to live like Jesus really is the beginning, the foundation, the cornerstone? Jesus is the foundation. But the second foothold for life, living a life of wonder in this world, is that Jesus is the telos. He's the, he's the starting point. He's the anchor. But he's also the telos, which means he is the goal. He is the aim. He is the, the destination of our lives. Uh, life is hard in this world, and, and uh, you know you don't need to hear me tell you that, but I think often life is just monotonous, isn't it? Like, I have to empty the dishwasher every morning, starting my day with the tedium of, oof, yeah, I did that yesterday. Like, I can't even remember what day it is because I've got to start every day by emptying the dishwasher. Um, it's like Groundhog Day, you know, over and over again. Um, those of you that are parents, right, often, you know, Parenting feels like Groundhog Day. Uh, going to work feels like Groundhog Day. Just the same thing over and over and over again. I love the, I mean, it's hilarious in the movie Groundhog Day when Bill Murray just 
so you know frustrated with the tedium of the same thing day after day that he just grabs a toaster and jumps into the bath with it. <laughs> um, life is hard to live without a sense of purpose, without a sense that we're going somewhere, that there is a that there is an end point in mind. To say that Jesus is to tell us is to say that all of human history is moving towards a momentous encounter with him. C.S. Lewis says that life in this world often feels like we're like on the wrong side of the world. Like we, we experience beauty, but we can't get it in us. And so the, the beauty, the glory that we see just leaves us hungry for more. And it never fully satisfies. Revelation is telling us that all of human history is moving towards a great feast where we will one day finally see Jesus, where we will get in, where we will be on the right side of history, of the world, where we will, where we will finally be satisfied. Now you might hear that and say, well, that sounds great, I guess, and maybe one day it'll be significant, but what difference does that make for me now? Um, I still have to go to work. It still feels like Groundhog Day every day, but I think that knowing that there is a goal, a point to tell us, actually makes all the difference in the world. Uh, I, I heard Pastor Tim Keller say this once. Imagine two people doing the same tedious job. Uh, imagine, you know, you're put in this room and you're told for two years, I want you to just pull this lever every 14 seconds. Okay, you have no idea why. You're going to pull that lever for four, every 14 seconds every day for two years. Two people, okay? One person is put in that room and is told that you're going to get paid minimum wage for this job. The other person is put in the room and is told at the end of this year you're going to get paid, or at the end of two years you're going to get paid $10 million. Okay, the first person paid minimum wage is going, this is ridiculous, they go crazy, they quit halfway through. The person getting paid $10 million you know, begins to wax eloquent of the beauty of manual labor and just kind of leaning into the routine and it just feels really meaningful and significant, right? Knowing that there is a purpose, a goal, changes our experience of the present. When will you be finally satisfied? You know, we, we live in this, in this culture that sort of primes us uh, appeals to our hunger to say more, more, more. With the promise that we will be satisfied with the bigger house or the newer car or whatever, and yet we know that it doesn't ever fully satisfy. When will you be satisfied? You'll only be satisfied with Christ, not with a new house, not with a faster car, not in six months, not with more money, not with a great vacation, but only with Christ. But you will be satisfied with Christ. And knowing that we won't ultimately be satisfied until we see him face to face actually allows us to live life in this world. Not needing our kids or work or house or whatever to bear the weight that they were never intended to. And so you don't have to um, chase every fleeting pleasure now. You don't have to escape um, you know, often one, it feels like one of the only ways we experience wonder and beauty in our world is, is through these moments of escape, of running away. Um, okay, what does this look like? What does it mean to live like Jesus is the telos and the foundation? Well, 
this is, I'm not going to say a whole lot by kind of application today. This is just, an, I'm just trying to set this up. We're going to talk about this all year. But real quick, I think that um, the way that we spend our time and our money, the things that we daydream about, are an indication of where we are looking for meaning in our lives. Um, how do we spend our time? You know, technology uh, kind of prevents us from having to ever be alone. Uh, uh, not too long ago, I, I picked up my daughter from um, preschool, and I'm like, I'm going to take my daughter out to lunch. And so we go to Chick-fil-A, and we pull into the drive-thru, and there's this line at the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A. And we, so we stop, and there's like eight cars in front of us. And we just stop, and we've got to wait. And my daughter in the back seat goes, oh, that's good. So now you can look at your phone. I'm like, I am the worst parent in the world. Because what that says is that my daughter knows that I love my phone because she sees me give it my time. We will always give our time, our money, our attention to whatever it is that we love the most. And the problem, I think, for us as Christians in a secular world is that our imaginations have been starved. And so we don't really even know what it would look like to daydream about the goodness and beauty and glory of who God is. And um, the, only, the only way to counteract that is to spend time with God. Uh, one thing that my wife and I have done starting this year uh, in, in January is just we put an alarm on our phone for noon. And at noon, you know, the alarm goes off. And I read a psalm. It takes five minutes. You know, it's just a chance to stop in the middle of the day and remember that God is with me um, and that he is good and that he has been faithful. You could do that too if you wanted. <laughs> you know, I don't have time, but we always make time for what we love. If the telos of life is Christ, then the purpose of life, uh, this is, you know, we're going to see this as we get into Revelation, but Jesus says here in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, at verse 4, it, it, John kind of picks up and he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And this is going to become this theme over and over again in Revelation that Jesus is the faithful witness and therefore those who are in him are called to be witnesses to, uh, to who he is. And by witnesses, I don't mean like weird people with signs on the corner. It, a witness is just somebody who tells what they have experienced. And so if Jesus is the telos of life, then our place in this life, the purpose of life, is found um, by taking our place as members of his church, taking part in his mission. And that's the message of Revelation. We commit to uh, the people of God, the church, because we cannot do this alone. We simply cannot do this alone. And we were created for community. We commit to his mission because the reality is that life in this world is hard. And if we go into this world believing that the purpose of life is to be happy and comfortable, it's really going to be a bummer. So we commit to his mission because life is messy and the water is going to get rough. And so we just know that that's coming. It's best to know that at the outset. We commit to his people and to his mission uh, because church is a family. It's a community. It's a people. It's not simply an event. Okay, that's the message of Revelation 1. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the foundation and he is the telos. But listen, Jesus doesn't say, like, 
I want you to make me the Alpha and Omega. It, it, it simply declares that he is. And what I think that means for us is that um, our lives are not going to function well. <laughs> There's this phrase in the gospel, kicking against the goads. It's like trying to go against the grain of the universe. Jesus simply is the foundation. He is the purpose. We don't have to make him a priority, but our lives will function best when we take the time to stand in awe of who he is. We need to know that there's someone on the other end of the line when we pray. We need to know that uh, the Bible contains not just facts, but truths. Uh, let me say that better. Uh, let me say this. There's this quote in Indiana Jones. You know, Indiana Jones, we think of as uh, this explorer, but his day job was that he was a professor of archaeology. And um, at one point, uh, it's kind of a throwaway line in one of the movies, but Indiana Jones is teaching a class, and he says to his students, archaeology is about facts, not truth. If you're interested in truth, the philosophy department is down the hall. And I think that that narrative, is, or that um, quote, is really helpful for understanding life in a secular world. Uh, science pre presents us with facts, but is insufficient to provide the narrative that ties them all together. We need to know that the Bible contains not just facts that we argue about, but it actually contains the true story of the way that life actually is in this world. We need to know that there is a God who is really worth following, because if there's not, like if, if the Bible is fiction, there is a lot of stuff to get done and a lot of ways to distract ourselves, but it's a waste of time to pretend like it just contains facts and not truth. Awe is what we experience when we sense that God has come close. And so that's what I want you to help you experience this year. I was uh, watching, I discovered this, um, I guess it was a book originally, but I've been watching the, uh, the TV show uh, or the miniseries, I guess. It's called um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And uh, it takes place in the 1900s in England, and the, it's, a, it's a mythological story where, uh, in this kind of world, uh, magic was a part of life in England. Uh, and it, But it's vanished. It, it, magic hasn't been practiced in England for 300 years. And yet it, it, it remains as part of like the, folk, uh, the kind of memory of the English people, like you know, King Arthur. And so there are these group of, there's this group of men, and they, uh, they call themselves magicians. And yet it says in the book, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, or made one mode of dust alter its course, or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. But with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in all of Yorkshire. And they met every month to present papers that were boring and dull about the state of magic, but they, would ne they considered the actual practice of magic vulgar and beneath them. And so they called themselves theoretical uh, magicians instead of practicing magicians. This year I want to invite you to become a practicing Christian. Not just a theoretical one, but a practicing Christian, a disciple. You know, I know that we're all very busy, um, 
And I know that becoming a practicing Christian is going to feel awkward. <laughs> I know that some of us are introverts. I'm an introvert. I know that some of us are concerned that becoming a practicing Christian, like people might, um, you know, we're worried about what people would think about us. And I want to tell you that there's good news, that people can change. It's not simply about deciding to make Jesus like a higher person on your priority list. But people change when, when we glimpse the glory of who God really is. And the book of Revelation, the simple fact that it exists, is proof of that. Because on the night that Jesus was arrested, um, all of his followers scattered. And on the night that Jesus was arrested, there's this kind of funny, I, I guess it's not really funny, um, but there's, I guess it's a little bit funny, moment in the book of Mark that, that talks about this young man. One of Jesus' followers, he was, it says he was a young man. And uh, the soldiers seized him, and they grabbed his cloak, and he was so frightened that he ran away. It says he ran away naked. He left his jacket, you know, his clothes, and, and ran away. And uh, scholars tell us that the Apostle John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. He was the only one to die a natural death. And he is the guy that wrote the book of Revelation. He was so terrified on the night that Jesus was arrested that he ran away naked. But then, three days later, he saw the resurrected Jesus. He caught a glimpse of the glory of who Jesus really is, and it changed him. Seeing the glory changes us. The God who spoke the cosmos into existence is still at work in the world. And he can use you, and he can use me. And I believe that he's going to. I believe that he wants to change us this year. So I want to invite you to keep coming back and looking at the beauty of who God is together. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us? Would you give us the boldness to take you at your word? Would you give us the uh, audacity to believe that, uh, that your words as they're recorded for us in scripture are just facts to be argued about on the internet. God, I, I feel so inadequate um, to use words and I, I want so badly to make this come alive for myself, for all of us. But only you can truly do that. Only you can um, help us to stand in awe of who you are. And we're just asking that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.